0: Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, good morning. Happy Advent to everybody. If you didn't know, Today starts the season of Advent. And so this is four weeks before Christmas in the church calendar. The church has its own kind of calendar, its own way of organizing um, the year. And for the church, the liturgical calendar is what we call it. um, Today starts the new year. Um, This is when we start a new page in our year. It's the season of Advent. Advent is the four weeks leading up to Christmas, to the celebration of um, Jesus' entry into our world. Advent is also a time where we think of um, and long for and wait and hope for Jesus' second coming into our world, his return. And so it's a very special season in uh, the year of the church. Um, Advent has for years been one of my favorite seasons of the church, and it wasn't always that way. And I was thinking uh, this past week why it is that Advent brings me so much joy and just makes me happy. And I think one of the reasons is because I find it very profound that the church begins its year not with a spectacular moment or a grand event or a huge celebration, but with a time of waiting, with a time of looking forward, with a time of preparation. Um, In fact, in church history, there have been some who've who've suggested perhaps it would be better to start the liturgical year at Easter, to start it with the resurrection of Jesus and then move from there. And yet the church has always said, no, let's start with Advent. Let's start with the people who are um, preparing themselves, who are looking forward, um, who are in this this faithful posture that Advent invites us into. And so the season of Advent gives us four themes to think on each of the four weeks leading up to the celebration of um, the birth of Jesus. And so this morning, I want us to dwell on what it means for you and I as God's people to have hope. What the type of hope we have been given um, in Advent is and how that works and plays out in our lives. So if you have a Bible, open up with me to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter will be our, our journey into this discussion on hope this morning. Um, we'll be in chapter 1. If you are looking at a hardback in front of you, 1 Peter is toward the end of your New Testament. Um, you'll be on page 1014, I believe, 1 um, Peter chapter 1. First Peter says something very interesting about hope. That I want to explore this morning um, with you all as we begin this season towards the celebration of Christmas. And there's lots of reasons I might like Advent. I've been in education for a while, so this is the season where you can like feel the end right of that first semester. Um, I've always enjoyed New Year's even since I was a kid, so I think when I learned that this was the new year for Christians, there's always some like fascination to that. Why? What is it about that? Um, and so uh, I just love the season of Advent, and I'm glad to be here with you this morning. So 1 Peter, let's read together um, from chapter 1, verse 3 through verse 9. Verse 3 reads like this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time in this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold though it is refined by the fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ verse 8 Though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. As Peter begins this letter here, um he um gives thanks to God for what has occurred in the world and what has occurred in the hearts of believers that he's writing to, and that you and I Are experiencing today as believers. And he gives thanks for, in particular, at the very beginning here, uh, uh, being born again, this new life that has come into the hearts and and minds of people who found faith in Christ. And this new life, this born again, we're told, um, gets us into, invites us into, we're born into what he calls a living hope. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he says, through the resurrection of Jesus, this is the means, this is how it happened. God in Christ, defeating death, creates a group of people who now enjoy what he calls this living hope. And It's this living hope that, as he continues, will get them through the various trials that they'll face in life. It's this living hope that will allow them to look forward to and be ready for what he calls the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of. Of Jesus Christ, indeed, Advent is about this revelation. Advent, the word just means um, to to come, to appear. And Christians believe that there have been um, these, there will be these, these two great revelations of Jesus. The first one has already occurred in, in Christ's birth, and the second one is still to come in the future when Jesus returns. And as Peter expressed here, it's it's this living hope. Um, about what is to come, about obtaining the salvation um, that is promised to us, that allows us to endure. Um, the question I'd like to ask this morning is, is, what is this living hope? What does it mean, and, and how does it look and work in our lives? Um, we might begin by asking what a dead hope might be. What would be the opposite of a, a living hope that we're born into? Um, a dead hope um, reminds me of, um, it brings to mind something that is inactive, something that, that doesn't move, that doesn't progress, that doesn't um, push forward. Um, I, I think of the book of James where he talks about a faith that's dead. He says a faith that works is dead. If, if your faith hasn't pushed you forward, if your faith bears no fruit, then he says it's, it's not really there. It's not really active and alive. And, and I think to some sense this is what he's, he's pushing towards when he, he says we've been born into this living hope. Christians have been given, you and I have been given, a hope that is alive in us. A hope that is supposed to move us. A hope that is supposed to, to push us. A hope that is supposed to form us. Humanity, by nature, just as a, a, a species, are people of hope. We're people who have been given longings and desires and who, from the very beginning, hold out hope that one day those desires and longings will be fulfilled in various ways, at various times, and through various means. But in each one of us, and and I would say I think this is pretty constant, it's pretty universal throughout humanity, there remains in us, to some degree, some very deep longing or desire for love and for joy and for peace, for meaning and satisfaction, and it's not just Christians who hold out hope for these things, but it is Christians who Peter says, have a, a living hope, a hope that will not fail them because of the resurrection of Jesus and because of his eventual return. C. S. Lewis, the, the, the Christian author, talked about the, the hope um, that Christians have been given often. It was a big theme of his writings. He, he uses a German word often for it that roughly translates into the longing or desires. Um, but one of the ways he described it was as a, a forward-facing nostalgia. So we, I think we've all felt nostalgic before, right? There's something in our past that was beautiful and, and peaceful and enjoyable, and we, we have this longing to go back and to experience it again. And he says, a living hope is like that, except it's turned around. It's, it's nostalgic towards the future, it, it can feel a sense of longing that it knows has an end date, has a fulfillment that's coming in the person of Christ. It, it might be like a, a home that we've felt, but we've never been to. It might be like a rest that we've enjoyed, but we've never yet participated in. Or some food that we can taste, but that has never been served to us yet. It's this forward-facing nostalgia it's this, it's this future-oriented leaning towards the fulfillment of our, our hopes and our dreams, the deepest desires that we have as human beings. Hope is one of the three theological virtues Paul gives us in First Corinthians 13. He says, faith, hope, and love will remain. And even above all these, love itself is the greatest. A virtue is a, a character strength. It's a skill that will be useful to you. It will help you become the type of person you need to be. And indeed, for us to be faithful Christians, for us to be a people formed by the manger and the cross, be formed by the resurrection and the Spirit, is for us to be a people of hope, the people who have a hope that pushes and moves and develops us, a people who have a, a living hope, who look forward um, to what is to come, with expectation and joy, with longing and desire, with confidence. Now, what happens to many people is we're born with these, these very deep longings and desires. Um, they're often hard to describe. It, it's, it's hard to kind of come up with words for these things. Um, and many of us, though, can still remember the first or one of the first times one of these longings or desires disappointed us. Perhaps we, we hope to, to experience love and security, and, and one of our parents failed us in this way. We we can remember and maybe in a sense still feel that wound where that deep longing and desire, kind of the bottom fell out of it for us. Um, What happens along the way to most of us by the time we get into adulthood is that it becomes harder and harder to genuinely hope for the things in which we we desire. It becomes harder and harder for us to genuinely believe that um, our deepest desires will one day be true in the gospel. And this can happen for a variety of reasons. Perhaps it's just because through the death of a million cuts, disappointment after disappointment after disappointment after disappointment, you lose hope. You stop imagining that these things can actually be experienced or be found. Or perhaps you're kind of trained out of it. You're kind of taught to not be so childlike, to not, to not be so imaginative, to not just wish for the best. You're you're taught to be more of a respectable adult, um, to kind of to, to be more fruitful and and realistic and practical in the, the real world. Lewis, in describing the hope that Christians have, um, said there are there are three ways primarily that humans react to um, their hope being disappointed as they inevitably experience life. And two of these ways he thinks are wrong, and one of them is is correct. And I want to go through the the three reactions he has this morning with you, and maybe wonder in our own hearts, and our own lives, um, what reactions we've experienced or we have um, participated in. He says, one of the first ways that people react to a desire or a longing that's unfulfilled is that they, he calls it the fool's way. So you can probably tell this is not his recommended way, okay? It says, this is how the fool reacts. They put the blame on the things themselves that failed them. So it's like this there's a desire for love and for peace and for joy, and that infant really is desiring those things right now. Some soothing. There's this desire, and and so we, we turn to a relationship and then we don't find it there. Or we turn to money and we, we don't find it there. Or we turn to, to pleasure or some other experience and we don't find it there. And how we react to that disappointment is we say, This must have been the wrong relationship. This was not enough or the right amount or the right kind of wealth. This was not the right holiday or vacation or experience for me. So we we just jump from thing to thing to thing. So this is the person who is is on their seventh marriage and complaining about their spouse. Eventually, you're going to have to probably, you know, accept the fact that, that that perfect ideal person who completes you in every um, last weight. is just a a figment of your imagination, right? The fool says, no, I just keep blaming the things in front of me. Um, Lewis thought that most rich, discontented people probably fell into this category. He thought that one of the traps of wealth was that it gave you enough resources to continue this journey. That those without as much wealth perhaps are forced to reconcile this fact before those who have unlimited resources, who can actually hop around from island to island to island, hoping that the next one will find what they've been, they've been looking for. The fool's way is to, to continually just blame that which they've tried and, and to look for it in something else. It's always seeking the real thing, and it's always disappointed. I think you and I can, can relate to that. The second way that Lewis says some people react he calls it the way of the sensible man. To Lewis, this way is preferable to the first, and it would be the best reaction if it weren't for the Christian hope, if it weren't for the gospel. He says the way of the sensible man is the person who, in a sense, grows up. They decide that the, the most uninhibited desires and longings they have as human beings are, in a sense, unrealistic. They're never to be fulfilled. And so they, they settle down. They kind of repress their expectations. They become more of a realist. They look around at the world and they just accept it for what it is. They say there are some things that I'll enjoy and there are other things that I won't enjoy, and I'll just kind of stoically find my way through, no matter what happens. He thought that the the sensible man um, is a a person who's often happier than the first person, um, if not because at least they have settled the the rat race. In their hearts. Um, it's interesting to me uh, that, um, and I don't know if this is true 30, 40, 50 years ago, but a lot of celebrities today are very clear and transparent about the fact that that money has disappointed them, in a sense. Um, I hear this a lot, perhaps in social media, just the transparency of, of everyone's lives now. Um, people who have millions of dollars and, and billions of dollars who say, um, look, it's great to have money, don't get me wrong, and I, everyone probably would want what I have, but let me tell you it hasn't scratched that human itch. It hasn't it hasn't filled whatever that hole is that we use various words to describe. This is the fool's way. The one who just keeps just jumping on it. Solomon is probably our, our biblical example for the fool's way. A man of unlimited resources has an uh, immeasurable amount of of lives a measurable amount of money a measurable amount of experiences and at the end of the day he says none of it satisfies him none of it brings him meaning and he writes the the pessimistic book of ecclesiastes the sensible man for lewis is one who's at a little bit more peace and it's the one who's less of a nuisance to society he's the productive citizen because he's not too concerned and anxious about what is out there to be experienced if only he pushed hard enough So he settles down and does what he's asked of. He doesn't ask too many questions. doesn't push too many boundaries. He kind of goes about the business um, that he has been given. For Lewis, though, because of Christ and because of the resurrection, because of the Advent season, there's a better, more correct way to respond to these desires and longings than we have than the fool's way or the sensible man's way. He calls it simply the Christian way. And he has some very famous quotes you might be familiar with that fall under this this category of response. He says, Christians say, in the Christian way, Christians say that creatures are never born with desires unless the satisfaction for those desires exists. And so he gives some examples. Babies are born wanting food. And that food exists. There's something there to meet that appetite. Ducklings are born wanting to swim. And there's water out there for them to go and swim in. Aggies are born wanting to win football games, and that doesn't happen for them, but there are still championship titles out there for other people to experience. And so he says, if if we find ourselves having desires that aren't fulfilled in the world around us, it should indicate to us not that we just haven't tried enough things in front of us, and not that those things don't exist, but perhaps they don't exist in what's right in front of us. That perhaps there's somewhere else where those longings are fulfilled. There's something transcendent about what we seek and desire for as humans that's found in, in God and God alone. That's found in the hope for heaven, the inheritance that is coming for us. And for Lewis, he said, if this is the case, if it's the case that the greatest longings and desires that we have as as human beings is fulfilled in Christ, then two things must be true for Christians. First, we must be grateful for the gifts we have right now. He says we shouldn't, in in hoping for the fulfillment of our, our hope, ignore all the good around us. We shouldn't pretend it's not good or not enjoyable. We should be be grateful. But he says we should also never mistake the earthly blessings we have now for the real thing. So we should be thankful for the relationship that works well. But we should never mistake that for our deepest longing, which is only found in, in relationship to God. We should be thankful for the rest that we experience in whatever stage of life that we're in, but we should never mistake that for the the rest that we find in in the Lord. We should be thankful for the amount of peace and joy we're able to experience. But we should never mistake that with that which is coming for us, which is much more than we could ever imagine. This response to our, our longings and desires, I think, produces this living hope. It's a hope that's active in getting us to recognize what is good around us. And it's a hope that is active in getting us to still look further and further forward for more and more. That doesn't settle for complacency or doesn't substitute worship with idolatry, but instead enjoys God's gifts by letting them point them towards the giver itself, the creator God. In this sense, this longing or desire, this forward-facing nostalgia is the opposite of um, the good old times. And in many ways, I think nostalgia itself is a kind of a poison to hope. It's kind of uh, a a weed killer to the the growth of hope. Um, And what I mean by that is if you're always looking back at a, a, a relationship or at a time in your life or experience in your life, then it's hard to, to remain faithful and focus in the present. And it's even more hard to, to cultivate hope in the future. Um, hopelessness arises much quicker in the person who is stuck in the past than the person who's just lost in the present. Um, I think we all have these these moments in our lives that we look back on with fondness and with joy and we think, man, those those days were just great. It was just a great, great time in my life, a great great experience that I had. Um, one of them for me is, is just the, the innocence of childhood. I'm an anxious person. And not to romanticize it, I was anxious as a kid too, but it was still different anxieties. I was anxious about whether I'd get to play outside or not, whether I have dessert tonight or not, not about mortgages and things like that. And I, I long, I look back on that. And the, the temptation is to get stuck there. The antidote, though, I think is that even in nostalgia, we can allow it to direct us into this living hope if we allow it to, to kind of turn us back towards the future. Um, so let me explain this in a couple different ways. Um, I've got a friend who um, lost his wife um, recently, and, and so the holiday time is a very painful time for, for people who have lost loved ones um, I think almost all of us probably have some experience of this and and it just reminds us of the people that we're missing. And and for him, that that pain is so fresh, that wound is so real still, um, that that this is a season where he is very nostalgic, where he looks back at last Christmas. He looks back at the last two and three Christmases. And he he expressed to me this this difficulty in, in moving away from that but then expressed this desire that perhaps he could find in that forward-facing or, or past-facing nostalgia the ground to face it forward. That he might look back to last year's Christmas with his wife and realize that even that, while so much greater than what he is experiencing right now, is a small taste of what is to come in the future. Or maybe we could use like pain as an example. Someone who lives in chronic pain, I think, often looks back on a, a time in their life where they were without that pain where they could do certain things I can't do right now, where they experienced a life that was free of, of, of the pains that they experience right now. And a, a living hope would say, while recognizing that as a gift, instead of getting stuck in the past in this nostalgic feeling, allow that, that desire to be pain-free, to go back to a moment where you're without these things, to direct you to what is coming in the future what has been gifted to you and I in, in Christ, and the gift of salvation, this living hope through the resurrection. A living hope, I think, ultimately creates in us a posture of waiting. A living hope means that we sit in prayer and in song, sometimes in silence, and we name our blessings around us as we still look forward to more blessing, ultimate blessing to come. It's a posture of waiting, and waiting is incredibly frustrating. And yet, waiting is an indispensable part of the spiritual life. Waiting, I think, is a spiritual discipline of sorts. If, if being a Christian means anything, I think it means to be someone who is at least learning how to wait faithfully. God's people have always been a people who have had to wait. If you think about the birth of Jesus, by the time um, that Jesus was born, um, if you go back to the the promise given to David that that one of his sons would be the Messiah, would be the king that God would accomplish his his purposes through, um, approximately a thousand years pass between the time of that promise and the time of Jesus' birth. And the, the Jewish people had this very real hope that they had placed in this promise. But time can whittle away are the confidence you have in promises, the hope that those desires and longings will be fulfilled. And so, God's people, we see it happening in the Old Testament, have to go through and learn and, and grow in their ability to wait, their ability to remind themselves in the meantime of what is coming, their ability to, to still maintain their gratitude for what is here right now. We're waiting, people if you, you think of about the time from the, the birth or resurrection of Christ to the second coming of Christ, we have no date on this yet, but we know it's at least 2,000 years. It's, again, a very, very long time. Almost every generation since um, the first century has thought their generation was the generation Jesus was coming back during. And it's one of these prophecies that eventually one generation is going to nail, Right? Yes, we told you. It was going to be us. Truth we don't know. We do have this in common with the earliest Christians who who thought Jesus was coming back very soon for them. Who had to be eased into the idea that perhaps some of us are going to die before this happens, before Jesus returns. What seemed like five years to them was a very long wait and stretched into 1,000 years and 2,000 years. As one scholar put it, for all that we know, we are still the early church. When we look back on the first few centuries of Christians, and they're like, wow, they were really exploring their way in the world, what it meant to have faith in Christ. Perhaps fifty thousand years from now, they'll look back in two thousand eighteen at Sweetwater Christian Church. Like, look at them, pioneers. Right at the beginning of everything. We don't know, but what we do know what we're called to do is, is to wait. To wait faithfully. Advent names the season in which we're formed in the ability to wait. Advent names the time that's been created for us to practice waiting, to look and to study how God's people have waited in the past, to evaluate our own lives and what's happening around us, to understand how we might wait better and more faithfully. How the hope that is alive in us might more fully form us and shape us. And when we, when we adopt a posture of waiting, I think we find ourselves, perhaps surprisingly, thrown into two large blessings. The first that that people who have been formed to wait are people who learn sooner or later... That the fate of the world, and in particular the fate of their own world, their own lives, is not ultimately in their hands. That some of the biggest decisions of life are not up to you and I, they're out of our control. We know this on many levels. We're all a phone call away from tragic news. Equally, a phone call away from life-changing, joyous news. I mean, if you think most of the things that really define our experience are outside of things we can manipulate or predict. But I think of people who, who wait, slowly realize this is a good thing. This is good news. It takes pressure off us, for one. We're able to look out at the world around us and go, even if it's not going according to how we might design it, it's okay. I don't have to allow the pressure of the world to literally crush my shoulders. We can look at our own lives and go, even if it's not working out exactly like I would have wanted it to, it's okay. My life from the beginning, when I was given breath in my lungs, has been dependent completely upon the gracious action of God. And nothing has changed that. To this day, and every day forward, the most important things about all of our lives are utterly dependent on God's gracious action gifts to us. This is, I think, good news. This, I think, allows us to feel that gratitude um, that does so much in our lives. The second blessing that I think waiting introduces us to is the truth that God is more patient than we could ever imagine. God is more patient with the world than we could ever imagine, and God is more patient with us. Than we could have ever imagined. I don't know about you. I'm not a, a very patient person. If there's a goal in front of me, and if I think I have the resources or authority to fulfill it, I, I pull the trigger. I go for it. I'm not a very indecisive person. I don't like to sit around and just kind of like brainstorm about the same thing without any new data or any new like uh, variables to consider. And so when things take a long time, particularly when I think they could have been done earlier, I start to kind of get frustrated. And again, we look out at the world, at least I do, and I go, there's some things maybe we could be doing a lot better. I don't know why it's taking so long. But luckily, God is more patient with the world than I am. And I look at my own life, and there are things in my own life that that I go, "I, I don't understand how this has taken so long. I'd never imagined I'd be this age and still be on this point in my spiritual journey still have these weaknesses, still have these strengths. And yet what we find in scriptures, by surveying history, is that God is, is, is patient. For all of the times that you might look in scripture and, and see a reaction from God that seems harsh to you, I think of, for me, the flood story in Genesis 6. God sends a flood to destroy most of creation. I think very severe punishment, right? For as severe as that is, we often overlook the immeasurable amount of time before that that God patiently sat with his creation as it spiraled out of control. It wasn't heavy-handed or coercive towards it, but instead created time for people to repent, for people to have faith, for people to find life, I think of my own life and, and how the only real hope I ever had was that God would create time for me. That I wouldn't be expected to have it all when I was this age or at this moment in my life. That it was okay to, to stumble and to scrape my knee and to get back up. It was okay to, to not move straight forward, but to take two steps forward and one step back. One of the things I learned, um, have learned being an educator, is that often you don't actually see the true fruit of your work with kids. It's something that happens well down the road. And it's easy to get very frustrated if you're hoping for, like, instantaneous transformation. It's easy also to get far too optimistic if you think all your work has been done in that year. There's a lot more to happen to that kid. We'll change them. No, it's when you realize God is playing a long game with this person. And I can, too which means I don't have to get frustrated that they're not perfect right now. I can forgive them. It means I don't have to lose hope if things aren't working out exactly like I would have planned, because there is still hope. It means when I I look at another person, I can realize that they are more than the worst thing they've ever done, or the worst thing they've ever said, or the worst thing that's ever been done to them. Equally, they're more than the best thing they've ever done, or the best thing they've ever said, or the best thing that's ever happened to them. Advent teaches us that this is true of you and I. More than our experiences, more than our strengths or our weaknesses, more important than all of that is the revelation of Christ. Is the hope that we have in our faith in the one who has come and is coming. And so this morning, as we begin the Advent season, I pray that we would um, pursue this this living hope, that this this hope that we've been given in Christ would so move and shake and push us along that we would be a people able to wait patiently, faithfully, able to, to wait in longing and expectation with confidence while we name our gifts in the present, and work as God has asked us to work.